my lords, my ladies, and everybody else here not sitting on a cushion. Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I will be your host in our walk through the movies out there that are a little underrated, a little underloved, maybe unknown. Um, our movie today isn't so much unknown. It's just one of these that I really feel is underloved. It's one of these that I know has been floating around for years. I don't really think it got the credit it deserved. It's one of these that... I know a lot of people who feel real strongly about it, but I also know a lot of people who haven't seen it since it came out. They kind of just watched it once and forgot about it. And their movie I'm talking about is A Knight's Tale from 2001, the uh, Heath Ledger jousting vehicle. And uh, my guest today, this is going to be a fun one because this guy is a huge fan of this movie as well. I'm very excited that I actually found someone who seems to be equally as excited to talk about A Knight's Tale as I am. Uh, let's see, he is a podcaster from Chicago. He runs an RPG podcast, talks about movies a lot. And uh, in the uh, spirit of Jeffrey Chaucer, I'll introduce him as the protector of Italian virginity, the one and only James D'Amato. Welcome. Man, and who better to protect virginity than the host of an RPG podcast? <laughs> Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm James. I run the One Shot podcast, uh, where we put together a different group of performers and game designers uh, and, and different notable nerds from around the Internet every month. And we play a new role playing game. And we release weekly episodes that are our adventures with these various role-playing games. So it's sort of like old-fashioned radio plays uh, in dozens of different genres. Um, if you're a, a film person, we sort of try to take a very cinematic approach to everything and have fun with it. Uh, you can check that podcast out along with uh, some of the other great shows on our network over at OneShotPodcast.com. Uh, I am also a game designer, and I was told I could plug all my stuff up top. Uh, I've got a card game that's going to be coming out uh, in mid-June. We're going to start up a Kickstarter for that. Uh, if you are interested, it is a card game that sort of combines uh, pro wrestling with a fantasy gladiator arena. So like D&D meets WWE. Um if you're interested in that, you can sign up for the mailing list over at bit.ly slash Dungeon Dome. Um, none of that's capitalized. And the last thing, I, I wrote a book about role-playing games uh, that's full of exercises that folks who have always been interested in role-playing games or who are even diehard fans who want to know how they can get more out of their role-playing experience uh, can go through and uh, do some of these exercises to really invest themselves in that fictional world and have fun with it and even play when uh, there's nobody else there to play with you. And you can find that book on Amazon if you just search James D'Amato. Uh, it's much easier than searching the, I think, very long title uh, that the publisher came up with. But it is uh, called The Ultimate RPG Character Backstory. Um, and you can check that out there. Uh, Mario, thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, yeah, this is exciting. This is like when nerds collide, because I'm excited to hear your history and your, uh, how long you've been doing a podcast. Clearly, you've been doing this for quite a while, huh? Uh, yeah, I'd say I have been podcasting now for almost six years, and I've been doing one shot for uh, just about five years. Coming up in August, it's going to be my fifth year doing it. Uh, so I've been around a while now. 
Excellent. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to hear how you and I kind of met up for this movie. And I'll give people a little history that a lot of times for the show, I'll have a movie that I know someone else likes. So I'll just arrange it. We're going to talk about it. Like I know people that like Drop Dead Gorgeous and like Harold and Maude. And I just know that they're, that they're the expert on that movie. So we'll talk about it. With A Knight's Tale, it was a little different. And I should point out, I've never met James before. I just happened to be looking the other day on the internet. I was looking for someone who loves A Knight's Tale, and I didn't really know anybody off the top of my head. And I went to Twitter, and I searched A Knight's Tale, and James had literally tweeted that morning something along the lines of, Hey, America, you remember when A Knight's Tale was the best movie of 2001, right? And I'm like, that's my guy. That's the guy I want to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I very much love A Knight's Tale for, for so many reasons. And I'm actually surprised because in my friend group, a Knight's Tale is one of those sleeper classics. It's one that we always talk about uh, as one of our favorite movies, but it does seem like, you know, it never got a sequel. Uh, it, it There was nothing sort of built around it. It was just this movie that sort of inhabited this very surreal space. And that was it. That's all we got. Um, and I, I, I just... I really liked it. It's one of those one of the few movies that I've like watched all the director's commentary for and like tried to learn all that I could about it because uh, it 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 had a surprising effect on me. And we'll we'll get into the plot here of the movie for people who haven't seen it or who don't remember it. But I'm just curious off the top of my head here. Why? Why does this movie call to you? What is it? The one or two things that really when you think about a knight's tale, what jumps out to you? This is my favorite sports movie. Ah. Um like bar none that's it uh it has all of the tropes of a sports movie but it's putting it in a wildly different context and i think like if there were a movie to like sort of rival it as a sports movie the closest thing i can get is speed racer like all of the other sports movies that you see that they've they've taken that formula a little bit too seriously for me to engage with and also i generally am not a sports guy but uh, a knight's tale like touches on all of these classic tropes that many of them very bad um but it does it in this really tongue-in-cheek way and it's so much fun to see how they're layering uh fantasy or not really fantasy how they're layering like these medieval tropes on top of things that like are so familiar to us and like we have a really big cultural uh context and language to understand uh you you can like beat by beat watch this movie and go oh that's that's this scene where they essentially like explain the entire sport in a way that doesn't give you any idea of the nuance, but makes you feel like you understand how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just so much in it that uh, calls out to those classic sports tropes. One of the uh, earlier episodes we did on, on Staff Picks was a movie that is near and dear to my heart from the late 90s, which is kind of a sports movie in the same way and kind of a period piece, but it's very anachronistic and just it's there's a lot of goofy modernisms that brought, were brought into it. And that's The Quick and the Dead with Sam, by Sam Raimi. Are you familiar Ooh, with that one? I have one? not seen. No, I have not seen this oh, one. Oh, okay. That is one of my all-time, I wouldn't say guilty pleasures. Again, that's not a word I like using on the show because guilty implies I feel bad about it. I don't feel bad. That's a fantastic <laughs> movie. But <laughs> The Quick and the Dead and The Knight's Tale 
just are like brothers from another from the same mother. It's like they're very similar in their their structure, kind of the way they turn an old sport on its head, and it's just the same little spirit of uh, trying to modernize it and make it a little goofy. And that's the thing. A Quick and the Dead never really found an audience, and it was a notorious flop. It just absolutely got hammered to the point that it almost made Sam Raimi quit directing. He didn't want to direct anymore. Wow. Yeah. And the, Fascinating. But, and so, like A Knight's Tale is really very similar, and that's what, I, what I'll recommend to my listeners if you like The Quick and the Dead, because I, I think I turned a lot of people on to that one. This is absolutely the closest I can think of to that movie. They're just the very similar style, spirit, and again... Now, Night's Tale wasn't a huge bomb. I mean, it wasn't a huge hit, but it, it unfortunately came out in that time right before 9-11 when all of a sudden you kind of forgot about pop culture for a while right after that. It was just, yeah, yeah it wasn't a huge hit. It, again, it wasn't a flop. It was just kind of forgettable, but it was just so Yeah, it was odd. really, yeah. I, I think you're right. Terrorism destroyed this movie, I think, is the message that we can we can all carry away. Yes. And that's... <laughs> Those guys were just jerks. <laughs> yeah, they really attacked us at our core. <laughs> But yeah, the thing I was going to say is that, and then the the added thing about this is that this is Heath Ledger's, one of his big coming out movies. He had uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, and this, I think, might have been the next big one. And for years, you know, he became obviously a very well-respected actor, very, very, very well-acclaimed young actor, but he didn't like this movie. He didn't like talking about it. He was kind of embarrassed by it. Had you heard that? I had not heard that. That's such a shame. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like he, I think he maybe took himself a little too seriously. And again, maybe he should have because he had a very accomplished career. But that's one thing I think that always hurt this movie, that he so did not want to be known for this movie that it just kind of got dropped, I think. I mean, I, I guess that, that I, I can understand that because if it had been like something that's overly too successful, like – to me, it's it's one of those movies that I could see, like, why wasn't there a sequel to this movie? It feels like such a thing that you could build a franchise around because it was so obsessed with its own universe. You're not licensing money from anyone to make it. But Heath Ledger obviously, you know, went on to be such an acclaimed actor um, and, and you know, re renowned for being very serious. So I, I think it is a sort of role that he could have fallen into and not climbed his way out of. So perhaps a good career move. Though, though disappointing to, I suppose, just me and people like me. <laughs> yeah. The 10 Knight's Tale fans out there, we were heartbroken. There was never, they never explored this any further. Now, did you see this when it first came out in the theater? I'm curious how you kind of stumbled into it. I did. I did. I saw this when it first came out in theaters. Um, and it was, I was like so young when this came out. I must have been in sixth grade. Either, yeah, sixth grade. Um, and my, my parents just took me on, on a whim. I, I don't know if it's like, I don't know how people made the decision to see different movies in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but it was just, you know, like, hey, we're going to go see a movie. And it was this one. Uh, and I remember we, my childhood friend, David, like we took him to this movie and nobody who went to see it had any sort of expectations or, or preconceptions about what this movie was. <laughs> and we came out and it was just a delight. It was just a weird delight where everybody who left the theater, we were all like, we liked that movie. <laughs> that was a good movie. Yeah, that's something I was thinking, because I unfortunately did not see it in the theater. I didn't catch it until a couple years later. And that's the one thing that always strikes me when I watch this movie is like, I bet this movie killed in theaters. This movie is such a little populist hit like Rocky, and it just absolutely is merciless in the way it kind of builds up to that, this big, exciting ending that everyone's cheering, and you have the horrible villain getting his comeuppance, and it's just, 
it's one of those I really wish I would have seen in a crowded theater. And again, maybe it, the theater wouldn't have been crowded. I don't know what the, the summer was like for the box office or anything. But like, this is one I really wish I would have seen with an audience. I really think this works well in a group. Absolutely. I, it, it is one movie that I, when I take it out to watch it again, I always want to watch it with someone, mm -hmm. you know, and it can be a group of people who, you know, we've all seen it before and we love it or, or I'm showing it to someone for the first time. It, it's one of those where if it's on TV and I'm alone, I'm not into it as much. Uh, and, you know, the sheer delight of showing this movie to someone for the first time, like that's definitely what I'm in it for. Yeah, this has got to be one of the as funnest a word fun as the, I always struggle if that's a word or not. This is one of the funnest or most fun movies I've ever seen. And that's one thing I think that's kind of gets lost sometimes in cinema, how going to the movies is supposed to be fun. <laughs> and that's the only word I can use in this movie. This is such a fun movie. It's like such a delight. And again, it's 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 got the you know the big cartoony heroes. It's got the big cartoony villain. We'll talk about uh, Rufus Sewell here in a minute. One of my all-time oh, favorite so, movie villains. <laughs> so good. I yeah. It, I, I, fun is absolutely what you want to emphasize with this movie because like I come away from watching this movie and like I'm left with the feeling of like oh well that's fun and original but nothing about it is original right <laughs> like it's just it's a Frankenstein's monster built out of other movies and 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 put in this weird context this weird medieval garb that doesn't really belong there but it all fits together in like a way that is just delightful <laughs> it's like candy yeah, I was one thing that I brought up in one of my earlier podcasts is we we're, I'm a little older than you. So we had kids in starting in the year 2000. And so from about the year 2000 to 2006 or so, I was really out of the loop in pop culture. I didn't know what was out there. And this movie mm -hmm. kind of came out in the black hole there where that's why I didn't see it in the theater. But for years, kind of the struggle there as someone who loves movies is I was always trying to find movies we could watch at home with the kids around that weren't super offensive, but were still exciting enough for me as a grown up that I could like it wasn't like a dumb Disney movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and this is one of those, I, I think I always say School of Rock and like A Knight's Tale and Shrek were like the three in that era that I thought were legitimately really funny and really awesome. And my kids grew up watching A Knight's Tale. And again, it's kind of violent, but but they're, they're the same way as me. They love this movie because they saw it so many times growing up because it was one of those that was just kind of right there in the middle in that sweet spot that kids would like it and adults would like it. Although, admittedly, not every adult likes it. I've read some of the reviews. I know this got mixed reviews. And it's funny when I read the original reviews of this movie now saying that it's anachronistic and it's not realistic. And I'm like, it's like, yeah, dude, <laughs> the opening scene is a bunch of uh, 14th century English villagers chanting. We will rock you at a jousting match. I don't think it's going for realism right off the bat. That's such a oh, God. It's like that is the worst version of the word nerd. That's what it means. If you're a film critic and you're like, that's not what it's like. Dude, that is definitely not the point and is nowhere near the point. That can't be the criteria that you're judging this movie on. Yeah. No, Queen was not there. I'm calling BS. Queen was not there in England in 1370. This movie's wrong. I've done my research. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if people want to see this movie, again, um, you, I'm hoping people are familiar with this movie and how goofy it is and how odd it is featuring a 70s classic rock soundtrack and medieval jousting. But, like, go watch the uh, trailer. Just watch the original trailer for A Knight's Tale, and it's hilarious because it's shots of Heath Ledger jousting and all this exciting action going on, and it's literally We Will Rock You. They're playing We Will Rock You over it in the soundtrack. And, like, you're going, what the hell is this movie? The soundtrack, the soundtrack of this 
movie is legitimately great, um, though I was watching it with a friend recently, and, and she pointed out to me that, like, they don't use it in the way that, like, you would hope or expect. It's just, like, great songs that you're like, oh, yeah, I love this song. Mm-hmm. Why is it in this particular scene? <laughs> Uh, we will rock you. I think is one of the legitimately great picks that was used super well. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of like real classic rock uh, that shows up in this movie at at some very strange and fun moments. Yeah, if you've ever wanted to see a jousting movie that ends with ACDC singing "You Shook Me All Night Long," this is your choice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know there's other choices out there, but this is the superior version of that. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we'll get into the movie here in a second. I just want to say a couple things off the top of my head, just off that I love about this movie. It's got Heath Ledger in this great star-making role, just this great period costume movie. And again, it's super goofy, but at the same time, about an hour from the ending, all of a sudden they flip a switch and it's super dramatic. Is that something you notice as well? Oh, yeah. Well, it's following a sports formula, though. Like, uh I think if you watch any sports movie, um, especially those aimed at kids, like it starts off with building this cast of characters that's, you know, outsiders and misfits and weirdos. And like there's a lot of fun. You're enjoying that like Sandlot. Mm -hmm. And then much like Sandlot, it like delves into some weirdly, you know, dark territories. You're like, oh, wow, the, the mood sort of got brought really far down, huh? Um, as these as these kids all go their separate ways. So like it is the classic sports formula of we're going to put together our misfit team of outsiders and weirdos uh, have all this fun. Uh, and then like unlike a sports movie, uh, like there are two types of sports movie, right? There, there's the one where you have people who are who, who are good at what they're doing. And so they're winning. And then you have the people who are constant underdogs until they win right at the end. Uh, This one is like, no, they're good at what they're doing. They're going to win. And we're just setting up that big confrontation at the end. And they just pile stakes onto that to the (laughs) point where you are being bombarded with wild tropes uh, that that are just coming at you like, wow, they're they're going for an emotional knife that I don't know if they earned, but they found it. (laughs) Yeah, I'll go. Let's admit it. Do you tear up at the end with the blind dad? Um, I don't tear up for this movie, uh, that much. I do like, this is a movie where I'll be watching on the couch and I will like audibly shout yes at like various moments. Uh, but this one to me is not much of a tearjerker. Okay. Just checking. I, because I, I would never admit that I tear up at night at night's tale. That's so anybody who thinks there's no shame in it. It's, (laughs) it's so, it's so engaging. It's, it's, fine to tear up again i admitted that at the quick and the dead i kind of tear up at the end i tear up at the end of this one because it's so well done and again i I didn't even kind of catch that it's really following all the sports tropes but you're absolutely right that we get to the end and yeah it's it's, we really follow the rocky formula right at the end here and we'll talk about that um yeah two more things before i wanted to get into this is that this movie kind of has a reputation of being this stupid silly anachronistic night movie but what I love about it, and this is the the thing that a lot of people wouldn't know unless you really pay attention to it, is that there's a lot of clever literary jokes in it and allusions to, like, Jeffrey Chaucer oh, yes. and the Canterbury Tales. And there's all sorts of fun little things going on for English majors and people who know, like, medieval history. So I just wanted to point that out. This movie is not as stupid as it appears. Yeah, exactly. And it, it sort of it relishes in the stupidity that it has. Um, and it's a great sort of entryway uh, for for 
people who are like, you know, trying to instill that like this is a movie where a, a, a particularly put upon history teacher could throw this on or, or literature teacher could throw this on to like inspire some interest. Like I will tell you as as a kid who watched this like when i was in sixth grade i did go out after this movie to like look up the works of chaucer and and try reading some of those i feel lied to and betrayed in this movie as chaucer in this movie is a fantastic and charismatic figure who i fell deeply in love with and the actual chaucer sucks uh (laughs) And is so hard to to engage with with his writing and his works. Uh, But, you know, it it, it definitely sort of inspires wonder, which I think is one of the key things that you need to do in order to teach someone something like you need to get uh, inspired that fascination somehow. And why not do it? through a dumb sports movie? Yeah, no, that's an excellent point, because I can imagine people going out and this movie is so engaging but odd at the same time that you may maybe actually want to go and like if you're a kid you watch this movie you go out and you want to go read about these medieval jousting tournaments and what courtly love was like because there is a lot of despite the goofiness in this movie and despite the fact that the actors have accents that are all over the place and no one's apparently from the same continent (laughs) but yeah it's just it it inspires wonder and it inspires it makes this world come alive and i think that's something the director what uh, brian helgeland helgeland i don't know how to pronounce that But he had said in interviews that he wanted to bring this period alive. And he said, you know, if you show a movie with like medieval music, it's not going to come alive because that's not relevant to you. That doesn't bring excitement or anything. So he's like, even though they wouldn't have had this music back then, the music they would have had would have been equally as exciting to them. It would have been like a rock concert coming to these events. And that's that's what he was trying to do. He just wants to inspire wonder and make this age come alive. And I think one of the other quotes he said was that, you know, anybody else doing a jousting movie, they'd put like orchestra music in there. And he's like, they didn't have orchestra music back then either. So it's like that wouldn't would be equally <laughs> inaccurate. So it's like, yeah, there's some weird choices that went into making this movie to the point that I one of my friends said this is one of the ballsiest movies he's ever seen because it shouldn't have worked. But it just does. And again, there's so much love and attention to detail behind it. I just I cannot not fall in love with this movie. I just love everything about it. And again, we'll get into the cast in a second, but the supporting cast, all the actors, everybody is absolutely fantastic from top to bottom. Yeah, uh, hard agree. And let's talk more about that wonderful cast, okay. too, because, you know, we Heath Ledger's there, but there are some real bangers in here as far as cast, because we, we have playing as we we mentioned Chaucer uh, being something that the movie inspires. And it's not just because the movie is called a knight's tale. Uh, Chaucer is a character in the film and he's played by Paul Bettany, who I got to say really, really turned in a performance for this one. He chewed the scenery and it was delightful. Yeah. The first time I saw this movie, he was the guy that really jumped out at me. I'm like, that is one of the greatest characters in any movie ever. For people who don't know, Chaucer, of course, just this writer, you know him as the guy who wrote the Canterbury Tales, a uh, real-life writer who apparently, uh, James has pointed out, was not particularly a good person in real life. But I mean, not not, not like, not only uh, Chaucer, Chaucer, so Chaucer's writings are also Middle English writing, mm. uh, which puts them in a historical space where they're, it's hard to engage with someone uh, with as someone who's coming from a modern writing perspective, especially if you are at the time a sixth grader uh, looking for the work, just because it is necessarily has not been updated. 
and um, the stories themselves are uh, grounded in like, you know, it's sort of a satirical like taking down of churches and and royalty, which which can be fun and interesting, but uh, the way that it's presented is just like. You know, if you're the type of person who grappled with Shakespeare at all, this is like a couple steps behind that in terms of diction wow. and, and how words are used. So it's really hard to absorb, um, is what I'll say about Chaucer. All right. Chaucer, we're calling you out. Yeah. Chaucer, you're on notice. <laughs> yeah. but So, yeah, Paul Bettany, absolutely the best character in this movie. He just steals every scene he's in. And again, he's in the movie. They have him as like a uh, wandering uh, writer and poet he ends up hooking up with this knight and Chaucer needs a job he needs some money so he ends up hooking up with this knight and he becomes basically like a hype man that would be the equivalent oh. yeah he walks out there and he introduces the knight before every joust and all of his introductions are so over the top they're like WWE it's like a monster truck rally and yeah and like you said Bettany just chews the scenery left and right and it's awesome to the point that the other heralds in the movie they start trying to imitate him to like they try to they start doing a Chaucer impression as they introduce their knights as well and it's hilarious because they're terrible at it and he's really good and it's one of these things that you just always appreciate when you see this movie how good he is it's yeah it's a delightful like subplot that sort of springs up around what he brings to the role um and you know i i will say the way they play chaucer in this movie is the way that i see shakespeare get played in a lot of movies and that you know he is this charismatic uh and fun character who is like very into uh the wit and the word um and they they play with that so much and I, I really am curious what Paul Bettany thought of this movie afterwards, because I really think he brought it like <laughs> there was not much left on the table. And, and speaking of other people who, who were delights in this movie, there's also Alan Tudyk, mm -hmm. uh, who, who plays a minor supporting role. And like, you know, thinking of Tudyk today, he is stealing almost every scene that he's in, even when he's not physically in those scenes. Like I'm thinking of like the tick and, uh, God, what, what, what was he in Wreck-It Ralph or one of those movies like that? He was like an animated voice. Yeah, he was an animated voice. I think he was in Wreck-It Ralph, and also he was in uh, the new the Star Wars movie. Ah. Uh, uh, yeah, Rogue One. Okay. Um, as as the delightful uh, robot in that <laughs> one. So like Alan Tudyk is somebody who's like really a scene stealer. In this, he plays a great supportive role. Um, that's still very funny. Um. Uh, he's playing like a squire uh, who's like uh, part of part of like the original posse that Heath Ledger's character sort of rolls out with. Yeah, he's it's the thing about Alan Tudyk is hilarious because every time you see him in a movie, he's different. You don't realize that's Alan Tudyk a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And the one that really jumps out at me is, is you see that you don't watch a lot of sports movies, but the Jackie Robinson movie. Oh, I did not. Alan Tudyk plays the most horrible racist baseball manager who just screams racial epithets at Jackie Robinson. Like it's not, it's one of the most uncomfortable scenes you're ever going to see in a movie. And that's Alan Tudyk. And I remember seeing that. I'm like, that's the guy from A Knight's Tale. Like, how is that the same person? But he's so horrible and just brutal. And, and, and watch, I would watch just for that scene where he absolutely steals that movie as just a horrible person. I imagine that for Alan Tudyk. That's wild. Yeah, he's this old, wily 1950s baseball manager. It's crazy. 
So that's the kind of depth that this guy has. And then, yeah, Bettany is a famous scene stealer. And you got Tudix, who's a scene stealer. You got Mark Addy, who's the other squire, who's another scene stealer. I mean, he's in from the full Monty just off the top of my head. And I know there's other stuff as well. But, like, he's known for, like, stealing scenes. And then uh, who else is in there? And then Rufus Sewell, I have to talk about him. If I were to make a list of my favorite villains in movies, I would put Count Adamar, starring by uh, Rufus Sewell, as one of my top he is such a huge medieval douchebag in this movie he's God. so fantastic i mean it, it is one of the best things because sports movies generally speaking like you can try and put stakes on them but generally speaking a sports movie is gonna have low stakes mm -hmm. like it's you win a game or you lose a game and sure maybe winning the game keeps the rec center open but in the cosmic like uh scope of things it's not very big uh, the delight of Count Adamar is, you know, not only is he a sports movie villain who is like trying to be a romantic rival to our protagonist, but he's like a medieval lord. He leads people into battle uh, and he makes decisions that get people killed and, and maimed and worse. And they play with all of those like brooding uh, sports antagonist tropes, but they, they put them on this guy who is like legitimately a bad person um and the way he i love this actor because he sells all of those decisions and like he doesn't have a ton of dialogue to work with and most of what we get to see from adamar are just of these withering broody looks that he's he's giving uh our cast um and like a a, a underground dark seething rage uh that you get to see from adamar and he just he just goes for it there, there's not a lot of people in this film uh who who left you know anything at home he did not phone this in yeah and you don't use this word much when you're talking about these period dramas from the 14th century but count adamar is a dick that's really there's no other way to say it he's just a dick in this movie and he's forever just antagonizing this poor william thatcher who's this poor you know uh a squire pretending to be a nobility and adamar just hates him and he's bagging on him and he's talking about i'm gonna i'm gonna steal your girlfriend i'm gonna have her mount me and then i'll mount her on my wall <sighs> like in what world could you have ever beaten me such a world does not exist like he's so fantastic and i i I love Rufus Sewell because I've seen him in a lot of stuff, and he almost always plays a villain. Like, are you familiar with him from, in other works as well? I am not. I am not. Rufus Sewell uh, is one of the folks who appears in this film that I'm, I'm always just like, what happened to this person? They were great. Oh, yeah. No, he's in a ton of period stuff. And the, there's an Edward Norton movie called The Illusionist where he plays a, a, a medieval uh, duke or knight. or I forget what he is, but he's in that. But like, he's, he's a dick in that one, too. And he always plays these great villains. <laughs> and I was reading up on Rufus Sewell. I'm like, why is he such a great villain and stuff? And I was reading when he came out of acting school in like London he was a comedian and he was so worried he'd be typecast as a comedy actor that he started doing villain roles. And that's all he is known for now is he became typecast as a villain, but he's like, but I'm really funny in real life. Oh boy. I mean, you know, I, I think uh, the comedic touch really helps. Like he, he is again, like I said before, this movie is built out of tropes uh, and he's touching every one of them. Like, like Adamar as a character is overtly sexist. Mm -hmm. And like, that is, on top of like the casual sexism that you have in a medieval society. And he plays that to a T. He, he's also like, he is a French character in this film about like 
an English knight and his English squires, and they play that up too. It's so good. <laughs> okay, we've gone about a half hour here. Let's get into the plot of this movie, because there's a lot of fun stuff I want to talk about here. For sure. Okay, so the plot of A Knight's Tale is thus. That basically there's this um, medieval jousting champion. His name is Sir Ector. He is a... Uh, a well-known, famous uh, knight, and, and as they would back in the day, knights travel around the country, and they enter tournaments, and each knight has a couple of squires who would be peasants that work with him, and these are like local boys or teenagers that were raised to kind of travel around the country with this lord and help him and, you know, feed his horse and stuff like that. So this guy, Hector, is traveling around the country, and he dies in the middle of a jousting match. He dies... And what happens, he's got these three squires who are uh, William Thatcher, played by uh, Heath Ledger, and you've got Watt, played by Alan Tudyk, and Roland, played by Mark Addy, and their knight's dead, and unfortunately this is a bad situation for any squire in the 1370s, because now they have no income. Their knight is dead. They have no way to go to tournaments and get... And he gold. was about to win the tournament, too. Yeah, he was it's... a good knight. <laughs> So, so their knight's dead, and they have nothing to do, and this is one of these things where, you know, tournaments were only open to nobility. You could, you had to be of noble birth to be a knight back in the day, and they, they're about to win this tournament, and they have gold, and they want to get some food. These are just poor, starving kids, and one of the squires says, well, you know, I could pass off as Sir Ector. Just dress me in the armor. I can get out there. I can take a lance to the head and not get knocked off, and I can probably win the tournament that we were one step from winning anyway. And the other squires are like, um, you know, you're not noble, right? You're a son of a Thatcher. And he's like, yeah, but I can do it. No one will know. We'll get away with it. We'll get the money. And so that's what happens. He enters the tournament. He dresses up as this poor Sir Ector. He goes out there, and this is the famous scene at the start where everyone is chanting, we will rock you. Just a very interesting <laughs> opening to a movie. And he wins the tournament. He wins. He takes his blow. He doesn't get knocked off the horse. And he wins, and they all get all this food. And really, this will drive the rest of the movie where he's going to say... I'd like to keep doing this. That was kind of fun. And the other squires are like, um, this is not going to end well. You don't want to do this. And he's like, but we could, we could do it. And this really is the plot of the movie. Yeah. And he, he is definitely doing it by giving these impassioned speeches about like how he's always wanted to do it and how they have this fantastic opportunity. He's, he's trying to tempt them into his dream of elevating his station. Um, and eventually he manages to like, after like a scuffle with Watt and Roland to convince them that like, Hey, we can keep pretending to be this knight and keep entering tournaments, uh, and get more money. Um, so they have a training montage, uh, to low rider, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. is just, I always forget about that scene. That's fantastic. Oh, man, it's a delight. And like they come up with all of the one of the things that I love about this film is the imagination that went into, you know, what what was jousting like and, and how are people, you know, training to joust? And like some of it seems pretty practical that like, oh, you know, they've got these wooden dummies that they're working with. But other scenes, they're like pulling a boat along a river so that he can uh, get a lance through a ring um, and all sorts of other delightful things. It, it's just the creative anachronism behind this movie is is really 
just too much. Yeah. And that training scene, training montage is fantastic. It's at the low rider again. Just it comes out of nowhere. And then, yeah, they're just getting ready because, again, he's been a uh, a knight's basically punching bag for the last six years. This William, all he does is stand there as the other knight would ride into him as a practice target. So now he has to learn actually how to joust and knock people off. So, yeah, big, long training montage. And they decide he's going to have a name and he kind of on the spot makes up a name instead of William Thatcher. He's going to be Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein of Gelderland, which is quite a mouthful as Count Adamar points out later. And so, yeah, this, you have this wandering little band of minstrels wandering around going from tournament to tournament, just really trying to eat. All they want to do is get enough money so they can keep eating. And this is where we run into Chaucer, Paul Bettany, who, again, anybody who knows this movie, and even people when I told um, my listeners I was going to do A Knight's Tale, they're all like, Chaucer, I remember Chaucer, he was awesome in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is where we meet Paul Bettany, who... Uh, Chaucer, a wandering writer. He also has a gambling problem. So when they meet him, he has just lost all his money and he has been robbed. And he's basically walking naked down the street and this or down the path in the middle of nowhere. And this is a very awkward exchange. But he, through a whole series of exchanges here, he will become part of their group when it turns out that he can write anything for anything they need. And one of the things he says is, I can write patents of nobility, which for people who don't know that proves that you are of royal lineage. So all of a sudden they have a guy here who can forge patents of nobility and he says just take me with you give me clothes give me food and i'll write the stuff for you and that's how he kind of joins their group yeah um and so like that that is right before uh, they make it to their first tournament mm -hmm. um and thanks to chaucer they're able to enter this tournament prove noble birth for this fictional knight that they've created and uh he fights um and as he is fighting, he's very good uh, with a sword, not not as good uh, with the jousting uh, part of it. Um, and he breaks his armor in the middle of that, uh, which helps us uh, bring in another character. That was that was Kate, right? Kate, yeah. I, I, off the top of my head, I don't remember that actress's name. I know she became a big deal because I've read a lot of reviews that said, oh, Kate, the blacksmith, that's played by X. Laura Frazier. Okay, what does she know for? Um, I will click on this IMDb and see. Uh, looks like she was in Breaking Bad. Okay. Um, and Better Call Saul. So, uh, she must she must be a character on those that I haven't. Uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't really watched those, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Well, that's enough of it. But yeah, that this is this will become their merry little band of wandering travelers. You have you got Sir Ulrich now. You got his two squires. You got Chaucer, his herald, who again is really just his hype man, who walks out there and brags about how awesome Sir Ulrich is to anybody who will listen. Although I will say there's a fantastic joke here, and this is one I have to point out when I say that this movie is it seems stupid, but it's got some really smart stuff underneath it. There's a scene where where uh, they meet Chaucer for the first time, and he says something like. I write allegories, and uh, and 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 Roland says, uh, or something is something comes up that something he said is allegorical, and Roland says that's for every man to decide for himself. Which I swear to God is a literary joke. That's a literary joke about allegories right in this movie. <laughs> I mean, there's there's really good stuff because in this uh, tournament section, we we find out about Chaucer's gambling problem as he gets the the team into more trouble. And he is uh, caught by Simon the Summoner and Peter the Pardoner uh, in, like, the gambling issue. Like, he owes them money. Um, and if you have read the Canterbury Tales, uh, Simon and Peter are villains in the Canterbury Tales. Mm -hmm. And, like, 
Chaucer threatens to uh, like destroy them in fiction after uh, he's rescued by William and the rest. Uh, and, you know, indeed he does. Like, if you know anything about the Canterbury Tales, if you have put yourself through the truly unpleasant process of reading those stories, uh, you do manage to get just a couple more jokes out of this out of this movie, which might be worth it. Yeah, that's something I had noticed as well, the the partner and the summoner thing. I didn't know about that because I've never read the Canterbury Tales, or if I did, I don't remember it. I've blocked it out. But yeah, there's a whole subplot in this movie. There's the summoner and the partner hate Chaucer, and Chaucer gets back at them, and he even he eviscerates them at the end of the movie and says, I'm going to destroy you in fiction. I can be naked for a day, but you'll be ugly for years or decades because of my writing. For eternity, yeah. And that's true. Again, if you read the Canterbury Tales, apparently the partner and the summoner just are described horribly, and so that's how they kind of work this movie into historical fiction. In this section of the movie, we also meet our love interest uh, for the film, um, Jocelyn, mm-hmm. who is played by Shannon uh, Sossman. I mm-hmm. hope I'm saying that right. Uh, and we get the first of what is a parade of truly delightful costumes. <laughs> uh the costuming in this movie, like, is fine generally. Like, it, it it's fairly, like, medieval movie. There are a lot of rags. There's a lot of different, like, armor designs going around, whatever. But the costumers who worked on Jocelyn really went for it. Uh, when I show this movie to people, the comparison they make is Padme Amidala from the Star Wars franchise, where every new costume that she walks out in and every scene she's in, there is a new costume for her is amazing. Yeah. Um, and the makeup is amazing. <laughs> There's one in particular that I always remember where it looks like her head exploded. Like her hair is pointing out in these sharp spikes. Like how the hell did they do that in medieval times? Like she looks like she rock, walked right off of a runway in like Milan or something. <laughs> and I always laugh when I see that, like who, who did this girl's hair in 1370 to make it look like that? <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. Like these part of the anachronism, because there's this really amazing uh, dress that she wears where there is like see through elements to it. And like it looks like a morning garb. It's a delightful costume, but there's no way that is appropriate for the time period. (laughs) I I think I was reading somewhere that when the director was thinking of costuming for this movie, he's like, well, I just thought that it would be very fitting. I was thinking, what's my favorite music tour of all time? And he thought of the Rolling Stones in the early 70s. And that's all the costumes of this movie are apparently based on the Rolling Stones wardrobe from their 1972 tour. So there's your fun little trivia. Holy cow. Yeah, that's a new lens to to look at this from. Wow. So Jocelyn uh, is very much uh, an underdeveloped character, I think. Um, even even though she does get a decent amount of screen time, uh, she, as a character, like is a clever uh, and independent uh, female character, like in a time of of ubiquitous male oppression. Um, but we don't get too much more from her, apart from the fact that you know she's very beautiful. And that our protagonist uh, likes her quite a bit. Yeah, Sir Ulrich definitely has the hots for uh, Jocelyn. And again, this will become a major storyline. I'd even say maybe this movie's about 10, 15 minutes too long because there's one section in there where they're writing each other and falling in love with each other. And I think probably could have been trimmed down a little bit. It gets kind of tedious because <laughs> <laughs> she really, yeah, it's just, Jocelyn will will make uh, Sir Ulrich prove her his love to her by winning or alternately losing. So she kind of controls his destiny. But yeah. So anyway, we're going to we're going to 
to skip through here because there's a couple interesting characters I want to go through. Um, once we meet Jocelyn, we meet the love interest, and we have Ulrich winning these tournaments. This is where we meet his antagonist, the wonderfully, uh, wonderfully evil villain, Sir Adhemar, just dressed all in black. Rufus Sewell got these really dark eyes. And again, I cannot over overemphasize just what a dick this guy is. Oh, yeah. From day one. And like... Right from the start, he sees uh, Sir Ulrich flirting with Jocelyn, so he comes over and starts flirting with her just to get under Ulrich's skin. He's like the master of, of psychology to psych out his opponents. And so this will set up the entire movie of this guy, Adamar, who's undefeated. Nobody's ever knocked him off a horse. He's like this the baddest bad guy in, in jousting, which, again, it's like he's like Darth Vader. They're building this guy up, and all these sports tropes are there. Like This guy is the villain of all villain sports movies. And then we get a, another character here that becomes very important later in the movie that apparently Will is not the only person jousting under a fake identity. It turns out that the, the royal prince, Prince Edward, like the heir to the throne of England, has been jousting across the land. He like enters tournaments under the name Thomas Colville. And this will become important because early on in the movie... Will uh, Will is jousting him, and, and Prince Edward is injured, and, and Edward can't continue, and he's like, but I've never dropped out of a fight. Please give me my honor and let us go down the list and just not joust each other. And so Sir Ulrich will, will, uh, will honor that. So he basically treats him with dignity, and Prince Edward says, thank you very much. So Prince Edward is out there, and he's been jousting, and Will does the one thing he gives him his dignity, and then it comes out later in another tournament that... That's Edward. That's our future king. And like nobody will joust him. And like they're all scared. Nobody wants to strike a member of the royal family. And Will will not do that. Will knows that Edward wants to joust. So even though everyone will back out from actually striking the future king of England, Will's like, well, if he's in a tournament, he wants to do something. He wants to be a part of this. So I'll honor his wishes. So Will actually jousts against him. And it comes out, Edward's like, you knew I was the king and you jousted against me? And Will said, well, it's not in my nature to back down. So this will become very important later in the movie that Will's the one person who gave this guy Edward a chance and actually jousted with him. And this will uh, come into play later. But before we get to that, let's say the first tournament here, the big one, is uh, the final championship match is Sir Ulrich. This is Will against his, ad his enemy, Adamar. And Adamar, of course, snarling bad guy. To the point that he's got a little fist on the end of his oh, lance. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that's the great villain touch. The little fist on the end of his lance. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about the way these jousting scenes were shot mm -hmm. and uh, some of the things. Because, like I said, I have watched the commentary for this film. Uh, the lances that they use, the prop lances are like hollow lances that are full of spaghetti. Um, because they found in like the first shots that they were taking, like a pure wooden lance, even if it was like a light wood would not, uh, shatter in a way that was satisfying to watch. Mm. And they wanted every single scene with a lance to be a huge explosion of action. Um, so they found like when they were packing these props, like if they just full it with, filled it with spaghetti, there would always be, you know, a, a hail of splinters everywhere uh, whenever a lance broke. And e each of these shots like are happening in slow motion whenever a lance breaks. And like even if you don't understand how jousting works, the way it's filmed and the way they're doing their stunts make everything about it look so dynamic and, and, and full of energy. Yeah, it's really cool. And, and like you said, you can't... Yeah, he's not exaggerating. When these lances hit, they they explode every single time. It's just people getting blasted. And like whoever did the stunts on this movie, they were insane. Because some of the stuff on this... like 
when I watch this now, you think maybe I'm mean, obviously this is a little, you know, they hype it up a little bit, the, the drama and the violence and jousting. But I don't understand how anybody could sit there and take a lance to the chest or the head like that at full speed. Oh, yeah. In real life. So these these guys had guts, whoever was doing that in real life. And then in, in like in the, the 1400s, but whoever did it at the stunts in the movie, like that takes guts to sit there and wait for a lance to hit you in the face. Jousting as a sport was so violent that multiple popes uh, like forbid it. Wow. Um, but also so popular that that did not stop it. Wow. I did not know that. There's your trivia. Your staff picks trivia for the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, 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 and they really captured the energy of what jousting was in these scenes and, and the way it's shot. Like, I honestly think there are like uh, Renaissance fairs around uh, the country and, and I'm sure the world where you can see jousting still today. And I feel like you are not getting your money's worth unless they're filling those lances with spaghetti because boy, <laughs> howdy. Um, and like one other note on the stunt work, some of the stunt work that they do with the horses mm -hmm. in this film are incredible. Like there is one lance blow that they shoot where the horse, uh, like mid run, mid like canter stops and rolls over backwards, destroying the fence. And they, they talked about how difficult it was to find a horse who was talented enough to take a dive like that <laughs> without freaking out. It was the Chris Farley of horses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, and truly amazing stunt work because like you look at some of these slow motion shots and you know, okay, like I know this is a stunt person and, and they're trying to make it safe as it can be, but there's no way that did not hurt. Yeah. There's one shot in particular where a guy takes a lance to the chest and he goes flipping over backwards and lands on the list, the wooden thing in the middle chest mm -hmm. down like there's no way that didn't hurt <laughs> oh yeah that was amazing oh yeah <laughs> yeah i was wondering i didn't realize i never thought to look at these stunt stunt horses in the movie off to watch it next time i and pay attention to <laughs> i'm sure was PETA on hand for that because some of that stuff maybe not have might not have been all that ethical with the horses flinging themselves into posts and stuff this is still one of those movies that says no animals were harmed in, in the filming of, of this movie. And I trust that very much. Uh, <laughs> I just watch it and, and think, wow, those are some talented horse actors yeah. that I'm watching. <laughs> For purposes of this movie, horses were classified as explosive squibs, not animals. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, yeah, so the big tournament comes here, and, and Prince Edward, nobody will joust him, so he has to withdraw, and it basically comes down to the first big showdown between Ulrich von Lichtenstein and Adamar, and in this one, the bad guy wins, Adamar, you know, Ulrich is winning for the first two, and the crowd is behind him, the crowd loves Ulrich, because he's got the big, he's got the best herald, he's got Chaucer, and everybody, they just love his style, but then he loses in the end, Adamar knocks him <laughs> off, and then Adamar has to walk over, and he's got this wonderfully douchey taunt, this is one of my favorite things to say to someone when you've bested them where Adamar walks over and says uh, see me again when you're worthy you have been weighed you have been measured and you have been found wanting yeah it's dope it's it's a dope line for him to drop I I love all of the weird lines that that pop up in this movie and they're things that I like to reference frequently in my own life yeah, if you're ever in like a fantasy baseball draft or fantasy football draft and you steal somebody else's player, drop that line on them because it always kills. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. In what universe could you have competed with me? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so anyway, so that becomes the plot of the movie that, that Ulrich is a big star and everyone loves him, but he cannot beat Adamar. Adamar is just this asshole and he, he's better at jousting and, and Will can't beat him. And then Adamar gets pulled off to war, like he gets sent off to do real night things. And so Will keeps entering all these tournaments and getting better and getting better, but he cannot... He, can't, he says it doesn't matter because Adamar's not here. It's no victory without him. Exactly. This will kind of lead into the last hour of the movie. And this, and the wild, wild thing, like, you can talk, there are a lot of plot contrivances in this movie, um, but I think one of the most contrived things is, like, they've set up Will as this figure who not only cares uh, very much about becoming a knight, um, and, and that's something that we learned he had decided on from when he was very young, but he cares about the craft of competition and tournament. Um, and he likes Adamar as a rival and he respects him as a rival and he wants to be the best. And he knows in order to do that, he has to beat Adamar. Uh, that the, the idea to like, how do we keep will as a character at the top of the game and, and point out that he is undefeatable nobody can beat him but still have an emotional downbeat uh going into like uh the you know the the third act of this movie and the way that they do it is will is so emotionally head up about not having adamar in the competitions that he drives away his love interest <laughs> like she is just there to like support him and be happy with his performance in the tournament and what have you and he shouts at her and sends her off and and tells her that uh she is a silly girl because his sports rival is not there to challenge him (laughs) yeah the little uh uh script writing 101 there how to how to force some conflict into the third act here (laughs) yeah so yeah we have this big long exchange where will has sent jocelyn away they send letters back and forth and he finally convinces her to come out and see him joust in paris oh god no wait, wait we skipped over one of the best scenes which earlier when he's building his relationship with jocelyn there is a dance scene yeah um, oh yeah because she she has to go to the balls um and, and dance and they have this dance scene to golden years by <laughs> david bowie and it's 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 a delight. It is a by the numbers scene where a character says he does not know how to dance, is taught how to dance right before the big ball, and then has his date save him when everybody asks him like, "Well, please show us a dance of Gelderland." <laughs> um and everybody in the room having seen like two moves of this dance starts a, pro- a professionally choreographed like Hollywood dance scene. <laughs> Um, it's true delight. Like nothing about it makes sense. Uh, the song choice for it is a delight. It's such a great song. Doesn't really fit exactly the scene that it, that is put to, but it's it's a beautiful spectacle. Um, and so the thing that uh, Will, when he was shouting at Jocelyn uh, about her being frivolous and silly, uh, was her inviting him to another ball, and he's like, I don't care about going to a ball i care about uh being the best at jousting and for that i need to defeat adamar yeah it, i love that that dance scene i almost called it a prom scene because that's really what it is this movie turned it into, is it's not another teen movie for about 10 minutes where they they have a prom in the middle of medieval england and everyone has a professionally choreographed dance that they do and it's wonderful and, and like again that is such a sports trope and it's like a, a a younger skewed uh audience sports trope too uh 
like so much of the conflict in this, it feels very high school. Mm -hmm. Like Adamar being this brooding bully figure is he is he is an antagonist who's from a sports movie or a camp movie aimed at children. He's just an adult and has like actual power. Yeah. And let's not forget that when Will is out there on the dance floor, unable to do anything, he doesn't know how to dance. Of course, it's Adamar in the background saying, why don't you do one of your dances from Gelderland? Oh, God. Yes. Oh, it's 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 beat by beat. It's it's so perfect. Okay, so yeah, Will and Jocelyn have finally hooked up. They do this on again, off again thing, and now they finally hook up. And this is really, we go into the last act of the movie, which is where I say it really kind of switches from being this goofy, kind of fun comedy to a sports movie with real stakes. Like, this gets really oh, yeah. dramatic here. Where we're going to London. This is like the all-time, the world championships of jousting apparently are in London every year. And Will's going back there. And this is where we get a moment where we we learn a little bit about Will's backstory that... You know, he's been a squire following around this guy, Sir Ector, all his life, but we find out how that happened. So basically, when he was a kid, he's the son of John Thatcher, the Thatcher in the village, a guy that makes nets and blankets. I don't, I don't know what a Thatcher does, but some kind of weaving. Generally, uh, thatch roofs. Um, a Thatcher would put together the uh, straw rooftops that you would have in medieval villages, and that would you know protect you from rain and whatnot. Okay, there you go. So yeah, he's the son of that guy, and he's just this poor Thatcher's kid, and so... A long time ago, his dad, when Will was seven, said, oh, I want to get you a better life. I want you to go out there and change your stars and have a better destiny than just the son of a Thatcher. So he gave his son away to a knight, basically said, please raise my son and let him see the world and go out there and have adventures. And that was when Will was seven. And now he's coming back to London for the first time. And this is 12 years later. So he's apparently 19 years old. And this is the first time he's been back in town since his dad basically ditched him and gave him away. So it's very emotional that Will's coming back to his home now. And like he's this big famous knight, even though he's not really a knight, he hasn't been caught yet. I'm really glad that you used the turn of phrase back in town because when they come back to London, it is to the boys are back in town. Yeah. Yet another great montage. The boys are back in town montage as all the knights return to England and Will's all, he's like a big hero now. And we see him parading down the street and he sees little kids waving to him just like he would have waved to knights back when he was a little boy. And it's really kind of an emotional moment for him. Like he really did. He had all this fame and glory and now he's a big knight and he really did change his stars and he's going to come back and he's a big returning hero and this is what's really going to do will in is that he's back here for the championships adamar's back it's his first chance to finally take down adamar and will is going to get greedy and he's going to go visit to see if his father's still around he hasn't seen his father in 12 years and this is what's going to get him in trouble is that adamar has sent spies he sees will lurking around the poor area of town and they put two and two together and they realize this guy's not really a knight he's been faking it and this is really what sets up the end of this movie yeah, and the dramatic beat here, like, you are not kidding in that they are going to twist a dramatic, like, knife. Because Will is just wandering around uh, che Cheapside, uh, yes, the, Cheapside. This, this poor area of London, um, and he is convinced that his father is dead. Mm -hmm. um, he's like, it's 12 years, my father was an old man, uh, we, we live in a horrible society, so he's probably dead now. Um, and he speaks to a little girl who like admires him as a knight, um, and tells him that, uh, whenever they play knights, she always plays as him, which I, I just thought was a delightful touch, <laughs> but she, she drops that like, oh, there's, there's, he, he, he asks like, oh, do you remember an old man who used to live in this place? And she goes, oh, do you mean 
your father? <laughs> um, and so he goes to visit his father and discovers that his father is blind. And they have like this reunion where he tells his father that like, no, you did everything right for me. I changed my stars and, and you know, now I'm a knight. And they have this beautiful kind of tearful reunion and uh, his father tells him that, you know, his roof leaks and Will's like, well, that is not befitting a Thatcher, um, you know, and his father can't fix his own roof because he's blind. So Will goes up and does it instead. And Adamar's spies catch him in the act. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying, that this movie stops being this goofy little comedy right here. There's some stakes where it's really a nice, touching, emotional scene between Will and the dad. And again, I don't remember what the actor's name is who plays the dad, but he's fantastic in this movie. I absolutely buy that as a blind Thatcher in 1370. Mm -hmm. That is Christopher Kazanov. Okay, yeah, he absolutely owns, just again, every single supporting actor or actress in this movie absolutely owns their character and just makes it believable. And so Will is there with his dad, and it's very touching that the dad learns that everything I wanted for my son came true. He had a great life. He's not the son of a Thatcher. And now we find out Will's going back to the tournament, and there's policemen there, and all his squires come up to Will, and they say, um, you can't go back to the tournament. Someone followed you to Cheapside. They know you're not a knight. They know you're just the son of the poor Thatcher. And they're all encouraging him, you better run. Like, they're going to arrest you. They're going to throw you in the jail in the stocks. You're going to be tortured, dude. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be in a medieval prison. That is not the place to be. And, and like, every single person is advising him to run away. Mm -hmm. Everyone in his life is telling him to run. And Will, because he is the sort of wild, out-of-control, idealist uh, character that he is, keeps refusing them every single person who is close to him and important to him has like a moment with him where they tell him you need to run because this is going to destroy you and he keeps uh, insisting that i do not turn away i never reject a fight um and so he just goes and he gets arrested because of his pride. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, he's he believes he's a knight. He goes, I live like a knight. I fight like a knight. A knight would not back down. A knight would go up there and face the music. And they're like, all right, well, your funeral. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so Will basically gets thrown into jail. And which is wonderful because his first visitor is not the beautiful prince, Princess Jocelyn. No, his first visitor is Adamar, who's going to come and kick the crap out of him in jail. <laughs> yeah, which is like, again, this is... There are definitely sports movies where the bully character, uh, the the villain character, can like learn something like embarrassing or compromising about the protagonist. Um, but this is a movie where that character has like real political power and agency over that person. So the the protagonist ends up in a torture chamber instead. Yeah, and again, I I keep comparing this movie to The Quick and the Dead. You haven't seen this, but people who know that movie would know. There's a scene at the end of the movie where Gene Hackman's about to fight uh, Russell Crowe. And it's the big bad guy against the good guy. Right before that, they get Russell Crowe thrown in jail, and then Gene Hackman breaks his fingers before the big gunfight, which is exactly like this. you got to turn the screws just a little more on the hero to make him suffer right before the big fight. Oh, yeah. And we get to uh, the other, like, big inspiring scenes. Like, we have Adamar, like, again, tell Will that he's been found wanting uh, as he's, like, personally come into this prison cell to torture him. Um, and then the next thing we see is Will in the stocks. Yeah. Um, and there's a crowd of people who used to be fans of Sir Ulrich, who, you know, now hate William Thatcher, the, the person who thought he could pretend to be a knight. 
and slowly out of the woodwork, uh, everyone from Will's entourage shows up to defend him from people who are, you know, throwing fruits and, and like uh, hitting him while he is in the stocks. Yeah. And that's one of those tropes I always love in these medieval movies. If these people are so poor, why are they throwing their food at people? Like right, right, <laughs> they're the exactly. last people that should be flinging vegetables at somebody. And, you know, it's touching. Everyone sort of announces their loyalty to Will and how they'll do anything to protect him. Um, and then a voice through the crowd uh, tells everyone to stop. And the prince shows up. Oh, this is such a great moment. Again, this is the part where I almost start tearing up. And I, that's a vicious rumor that I tear up at this movie. But if I were to, it would be about right here. Where yeah, the... I'm sure there is a point in my life where I teared up at this point because it is delivered with no, there's not a trace of irony mm -mm. in how this plays out, which is buck wild. Yeah, it's crazy. It's so serious and dramatic here. All of a sudden, one of the, this figure in the crowd comes out. And again, for people who don't know what stocks are, William is in the, you know, with his head and the boards and his hands sticking out where he's in Village Square just being humiliated by everybody. And all of a sudden, this mysterious figure comes in. And this is, lo and behold, it's Prince Edward earlier in the movie, the one who who uh, Will was so nice to and gave him his dignity and wouldn't uh, and, and would, the only person who would joust against him. I was the only person that treated this guy like another knight. And Prince Edward, again, who is the biggest celebrity apparently in England, he's the future king, he walks out of the crowd and everyone just, oh, they're like in awe that Edward's here. Edward is like, so you tried to joust and you went to knight. Like me, you too had to hide your identity to do what you really loved. And then he's like, release this man. And then he's yeah. yeah. Then he's got this great speech where he turns to the crowd. He says, "My researchers had discovered that this man has a lineage that goes way back as a very ancient line of kings. So he is indeed nobility." And this is the great line here where he says, uh, "As it is, this is my word, and my word is beyond contestation." <laughs> and he dubs him Sir William right there on the spot. Yeah. Um. And, like, it is just it, this sort of beautiful emotional moment that is way, way overwrought uh, <laughs> and, I, like, done so well. Uh, people people are working with, you know, some very strange material, but but they're, they're doing their best with it and, it, and it works really well. And so immediately, you know, Will, it, like, the tournament is still happening, and they're like, you haven't withdrawn yet, uh... You are still Ulrich was scheduled to face Adamar, so William Thatcher will now ride to face Adamar, and we have to get there immediately. <laughs> so Will, who has spent the night in like a torture chamber, who who has spent the day in the stocks, like gets dressed up, he's tired, but he is going to face his rival, like the person who's been built up at the bet as the best jouster uh, around before him. Yeah, and and I can't overstate enough just for how fun this scene is. This is literally like Popeye eating a can of spinach right here. Will all of a sudden <laughs> rises out of the stocks. He's dubbed a knight, and all of a sudden the crowd is in awe of him because he is an actual knight now. He has lineage, and all of a sudden all his prestige is back. And you just see in Will's eyes like I'm going to take down Adamar, and yeah, and Edward's like. You haven't withdrawn, right? Are you fit to compete? And he's like, hell yeah! So here we go with the, <laughs> the big sports moment of the end. Again, for people like you who don't like sports movies, here we go. Something that's completely palatable because they've done such a good job setting up these characters, setting up the story, setting up the rivalry, and just, again, just making Adamar the biggest douche ever in a, in a movie. Here we go. Here's the big revenge right here. And we're 
we go to the finals. It's it's Will, who is now Sir William, against Adamar. And Adamar, of course, as all villains do, is not going to take this as a pure game of chance. No, he is going to oh, no, no, stack no. the odds in his favor that Adamar has now tipped his lance. Now he's not just lancing. Now he's got like a neat, like a finely sharpened stick underneath his the little fist at the end of his lance. So he's going to impale he's Will. He's put like an actual point on the lance, <laughs> and he he we established earlier in the film that he has a little fist that sort of decorates uh, the tip of his lance. That fist, uh, one of his minions informs him, is made out of spun sugar, and beneath it is this this point, and they're going to use that to pierce Will's armor and injure him Mm -hmm. uh, to stack the odds in Adamar's favor. Um, So, like, you know, going into this match, we know the odds aren't even already because Will has been tortured the night before (laughs) by Adamar himself. Now we know Adamar is like hidden, <laughs> hidden a blade uh, in his lance, and Chaucer comes in to deliver a truly emotionally touching version of his hype man speeches that he was giving before. Yeah, although we're leaving out one part here is that at the start of the match we have lot we have. Uh, uh, Sir William lined up against uh, uh, what's his face, Adamar, and all of a sudden he's looking around. Where's Jocelyn? Where's my girlfriend, That's Jocelyn? Right. She's not there. Jocelyn has gone to get his blind father to get John Thatcher. She's gonna bring him to the arena. It's the first time that the blind father has ever seen, aka heard, his son Lance or a joust in life. So it's like this big emotional moment. The first two lances come, and like uh, the first one, Adamar, his uh, his lance with the spear on the end has destroyed William's shoulder. It basically pierces his shoulder and will can't hold the spear anymore and the second one like he can't even hold the spear he just gets waylaid by a lance to the chest and he's down two to nothing in the points which we learned earlier in the movie if you uh if you break your lance on somebody's armor it's worth one point if you break it on uh, their helmet it's worth two points and if you knock him off the horse it's three points so after two lances will is down two to nothing he can't even lift his arm his arm has been speared and all of a sudden yeah here it comes where the dad shows up at the arena and and princess jocelyn's there and it's this big emotional moment and then chaucer's like hey wait a minute i never gave my little hype speech so, oh, that's yeah, right. So yeah. He said, like you said, he jumps up there and he gives his most amazing. Here he is. The I don't know. What does he say? I didn't write down the speech, but it's such a fantastic little speech. His little hype, his little WWE entrance here. Yeah, he, he points out that Will is one of the members of the crowd because like one of the first things in one of Chaucer's first speech, uh, speeches he addressed, he said, my lords, my ladies and everyone else in this arena not sitting on a cushion. And he's like playing to the crowd. And in this one, he's like. This person is one of you. He's was born in Cheapside just a few blocks away from here. And now he is here today before you as a noble, as a knight. Uh, and like he, he talks about like Will's whole journey sort of encompassed in this and how Will is like of this true uh, noble line of, of knights who honorably don't run away from challenges and, uh, it's just such a great emotional note that, again, like, if you were handed this script, if you're Paul Bettany, if you're acclaimed actor Paul Bettany and you read this script, you know it's stupid. Uh, but he, he turns in. It works. It works. He makes it work. Yeah. He makes those words dazzle. Uh <laughs> And, like, sets this up. And and Will, you know, is at this point, he can barely hold his lance. Uh, He feels that his armor is too heavy and he can't move in his armor. So he has his friends take his armor off and physically tie his lance to his arm. 
<laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's like every cliche we can do here for the sports movie. Let's stack the odds against Will as much as we can. Now he's the last thing. He, he we, We're riding one more time against Adamar. He must unseat Adamar to win this, or Adamar will not only win the match, but Will will be embarrassed in front of his father. And I believe oh, Adam, he'll die. he's going to die. He'll yeah, die. He's going to get hit with a lance in the chest with no armor. Will will be dead if he doesn't win this point. <laughs> and then Adamar will not only do that, but he has apparently entered into negotiations to marry Jocelyn. So he's also going to steal his girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like everything. The triple whammy. It's terrible. So... It will rides out against Adamar with no armor. Uh, and they pointed out in the movie earlier, uh, one of like Adamar's minions uh, said that as, as a knight, Ulrich was fearless because everyone or no, I think Adamar himself pointed this out to Jocelyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a chance when you are struck with a lance that a piece of it could fly through your visor and your armor and blind you. Uh, but Will would never turn his head away to protect himself so he could always keep his eyes on the target. And we're seeing that fearlessness uh, again as as he rides out against Adamar uh, without any armor, fully confident that he can unseat him. And as he strikes Adamar in the chest, which does knock him off the horse, Will screams his own name. <laughs> He just says, William, as he's like jabbing him with his lance. And we go into this weird dream sequence that Adamar is having as he is being unseated. Um, Like what the camera is trying to imply with this perspective. And like I get a lot of people I show this movie to the first time are incredibly confused by this sequence. But we are seeing Adamar floating in the air as he has just been unseated from his horse he has a vision of william and all of his friends standing above him to deliver the line back to him you have been weighed you have been wet measured and you have been found wanting um it's like so dramatic it, like we get that time freeze from adamar's vision and then bam he hits the ground. <laughs> yeah, it's so awesome because this is exactly what you want to see. That's why this movie works so well. That is exactly what you want to see. You want to see Adamar knocked on his ass. You want to see Will and his friends come over and use the exact same little catchphrase. You've been weighed. You've been measured. The only thing that would have been more exciting and more over the top is if when Adamar was hit by the lance, if he exploded. That would have been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Big old Michael Bay explosion as Adamar goes up. Per, per, perhaps if there was a punch bowl that had been left <laughs> in the stadium and, and he fell backwards into that. <laughs> I should point out that I'm a writer in real life. I do a lot of writing. And one of the things that when I'm writing an especially good article and about to post it on the Internet, just like Will, I scream my own name. I'm like, Mario! <laughs> You've got to. you got to. After, like, if I'm about to do an important role on my podcast, I always just have to scream my name uh, just, just to make sure the dice get the point. It, it, it's just there's so much, like, if you put these details about this movie uh, in a – like, like see them on their own for their own value. It's it's stupid. It is a dumb movie. <laughs> but the way that it's made and, and the way the people who made it brought everything together just made it work in a way that it had no right to, uh, which is just so much fun. Yeah. Again, we go back to right back to that one word. When you're going to the movies, you're 
you want to enjoy yourself. You want to have fun. I can think of very few movies that are as enjoyable when when this movie clicks and it works and you got, again, what a great villain can do to your story. You just want to see that villain get his comeuppance at the end. That's so satisfying and Adamar gets it perfectly. It's just a wonderful ending to this movie. Will wins. His dad cheers. Prince Edward cheers. Will has indeed changed his stars. He has found his place. Jocelyn comes out and they make out in the middle of the arena and then as as one does in a medieval movie ACDC kicks in and we start playing you shook me all night long and we cut up to the stars which I know there's some reference to what constellation they go to there I don't remember what it is off the top of my head but it's actually some literary constellation that ties into what's going on in the story but do you know what it, what, they're, what the stars are no no I all right well we'll ask our, uh, our uh, astronomer friends who listen all, all three of them that listen to staff picks if, to write in what what the what the star joke is there because I know there's a joke there somewhere yeah um and, and like this is one of those films where you can tell that uh at least some of the people who made this movie had a lot of fun with it uh it, it actually has a post-credit sequence um <laughs> where where the it, everyone except william like all of the squires um are having a farting competition at the end <laughs> that has like there's no way that fit in the movie mm-hmm. Like they filmed that as a po- post credit sequence. It's so strange, uh, but like it, it definitely goes a long way to show you of like what a delight this was for uh, the people who made yeah. it. Heath Ledger's off making Brokeback Mountain or something serious. They're like, "Hey, come back. We got some reshoots. We got to do this fart scene." Yeah, and he's like, "No, I'm good. You guys do that one." <laughs> wow, what what a fun movie to talk about. This is one of those that I really hope. I would assume most of my listeners, I know my listeners tend to like like obscure stuff like I do. This is one that I, I would hope a lot of people know already, but I would advise you to watch this one again and just really get into the spirit of it because I can think of few movies that work as well as this one when it's really clicking. And again, just so much fun, so enjoyable, and so distinct. There's no other movie. Again, The Quick and the Dead is the closest I can think of, and this one's even more over the top than that one with all the modern music and stuff. It's just, just a crazy crazy fun time for inventive movies that were coming out and again this one kind of got buried because you know it came out in may of 2001 and the 9-11 happened four months later and there was a time there for people who didn't live through that where you really weren't supposed to enjoy fun movies or comedies anymore everything was kind of deadly serious in america in pop culture yeah and this is the type of movie that would absolutely be buried and forgotten because it was such frivolous crap but i don't care i love frivolous crap especially when it's well done and it has great acting and that's why i Cannot say enough about this movie, and please just remember that my word is beyond contestation. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I I highly, highly recommend that folks check out this movie. It is like one of my great disappointments that there was never like a Chaucer spinoff movie, uh, because I feel like that you know the ground there is still ripe. <laughs> uh, Paul Bettany's riding high off of that Marvel money. Cool. Uh, might as well go out there and make a make a Chaucer sequel for this film. Um, but like, if you do watch this movie, do yourself a favor, uh, take the time to enjoy every single one of Jocelyn's costumes. They're all amazing. Um, and really drink in this world, uh, as somebody who does a lot of role-playing games, like this movie is great storytelling inspiration. Uh, the attitude and world that they've built uh, around this is like definitely energy that you can use in your own creative projects. Uh, it, it, it's just so much fun and definitely does not have the accolades that it deserves. Yeah, and especially on that last uh, lance when William rides at Adamar and unseats him, he must have rolled the hell out of initiative on that one. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that is That is a critical success right there. 
And the screaming of the name, of course, which is what you we, we must do. <laughs> All right. So anyway, um, I want to thank you for joining me. That was a lot of fun. Again, uh, James and I have never met before. This is literally the first time we've ever talked, and this was one of the more enjoyable podcasts I've done. I really appreciate you coming on, and clearly you know this movie like the back of your hand. I really appreciated that because this is one that it's so much fun to talk to with someone who really gets into movies like this because it's odd to me that not everyone does, but some people don't get into movies like this, so I really appreciate that you're the type of person who does oh well thank you so much mario this was a delight to talk about i i would be happy to come back anytime excellent uh is there anything else you'd like to plug any way people can reach you i know you talked about your podcast if you want to plug that one more time yeah yeah if, if you want to check out more of my work head over to oneshotpodcast.com there i do the show one shot where we take uh, groups of different improvisers comedians and game designers and we play a variety of different role-playing systems most people are familiar with games like dungeons and dragons but there is a wide variety of games out there that i know people would love and enjoy uh, you might want to check out our episodes of Starcrossed. It is a two-player role-playing game where you play out a romance story of two characters who really, really want to get together uh, but have a really good reason not to. Um, it is a delightful game, and I think it is a good cinematic experience. It's a great way to jump on with the show, but you can hop around anywhere in those archives uh, to figure out what we're about. If you want to talk to me and my thoughts on movies, uh, you can always hit me up on Twitter. Uh, I am at OneShotRPG on Twitter. Excellent. So I guess the role, the mission now is we got to find another movie that both of us like, and I'm sure uh, <laughs> whenever that happens, it will be my pride. It will be my privilege. Nay, my pleasure. <laughs> I had to quote Chaucer one last time. Mm -hmm. Got to get those Chaucer quotes in there. All right, again, anybody who wants to reach me, again, this is Staff Picks. My name is Mario Lanza. You can reach me at uh, Twitter, at Mario J. Lanza. If you have email feedback, if you have any movies you think I'd like to talk about or you think would make a good show, you can reach me at StaffPicksPodcast at gmail.com. And until the next time I talk to you guys, I will be out there searching for more underrated, underloved, obscure, unknown movies, and I hope to find somebody interesting that wants to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Keep on protecting that Italian virginity. Bye. He's blonde! He's pissed! He'll see you in the Lichtenstein! Lichtenstein!